A reading from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24. In fact, the whole chapter. These are God's words. And the serpent was shrewd out of all living things of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said unto the woman, Even hath God said, Ye shall not eat of all the trees of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, Of the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, and of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, and ye shall not touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not dying die, in that God knoweth that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and a desirable tree to make one wise. And she took of the fruit thereof and ate. And she gave also unto her man with her, and he ate. And the eyes of the two of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed together leaves of fig and made themselves girdles. And they heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the spirit of the day, and hid themselves, the man and his woman, from the face of Yahweh God amidst the trees of the garden. And Yahweh God called unto the man and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, Thy voice I heard in the garden, and I was afraid, and that I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Of the tree of which I commanded thee not to eat, hast thou eaten? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And Yahweh God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said unto the serpent, In that thou hast done this, cursed out thou out of all livestock, and out of all living things of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dirt shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. An enmity I will put between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall strike thy head, and thou shalt strike his heel. Unto the woman he said, Multiplying I multiply thy toil and thy conception. In pain shalt thou beget sons, and unto thy man shall be thy longing, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, In that thou hast heard the voice of thy woman, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life, and thorns and thistles shall it sprout to thee, and thou shalt eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou turn back to the ground, in that out of it thou wast thou taken, in that dirt thou art, and unto dirt shalt thou turn back. And the man called the name of his woman Life, in that she was the mother of all living. And Yahweh God made for Adam and his woman coats of skin and clothed them. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And Yahweh God sent him forth out of the garden of Eden to serve the ground out of which he had been taken. And he drove out the man and he placed out of the east of the garden of Eden the cherubs and the flame of a sword turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you that you have given us your scriptures, breathed out by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand them. Help me to rightly divide them and plant them deep in our hearts that they may bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Amen. Please be seated. We are continuing our ever-expanding series on vocation. 
So before we begin, can any of the children remind me, you're not a child, remind me what vocation means? Mr. Morris. Vocation is our calling, very good, what God calls us to do. And since it's been a little while, and since this series has covered a lot of ground, and since we also have honored guests who have not heard what we have learned, let me briefly remind you of some of the things, the main things that we've looked at so that you can see how what we'll cover today fits into the larger whole. The chief or foundational thing that we have learned from which everything else flows is mankind's calling to exercise dominion on behalf of God. The main idea, which is foundational to understanding all of the various duties that God calls us to, is that man is made as a representative of God on earth, an image of God, to continue God's work of impressing the heavenly pattern into the physical world. And the key phrase from scripture, of course, is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've also especially looked at vocation from the perspective of gendered piety. There are many duties that God calls men to and many that he calls women to. And sometimes these vocations are the same, but often they are either different or they are the same, but the way that we obey them is different. So we've seen that women have a special place in man's calling of dominion as they are called to be the glory of their husbands. While the vocation of men is focused outward to building the world, the vocation of women is focused inward to building their own houses. We've looked at a number of things in relationship to this to unpack our calling as men and women. And last time, especially, we looked at fathers as identity makers. The father is the source of the name that represents him and his house the name which he gives to his wife and to his sons. We especially looked at how this image is God himself who gives his name to his son. Remember that Jesus does not just work in his father's name, doing his father's work, but also as his father's name. He says, I manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world, in John 17, 6. We also looked at how the Old Testament speaks in a very similar way of God's name, with the angel that goes before Israel as they come out of Egypt, of whom God says, provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. And the same kind of language is then used, picked up, when God is speaking of the temple as the place where he will cause his name to dwell. I won't rehearse the application of that sermon to our own lives. We'll have it online for you to listen to again shortly. But I want to remind you of how the Father's name, his identity and essence, proceeds from him into the Son whom he eternally begets. This is how Father Adam images the Son of God, God the Son. Adam was the Son of God, the created Son of God, Luke 3.38, who images the eternal Son of God in the same in the way that he is created in this respect. He also images God the Father by being the one who begets sons himself to whom he confers his identity. But I think the primary image in Adam is that of the son of God. Adam is made in the image of God, but especially in the image of God the Son. 
he is like God the Son, because God the Son is the original, the eternal image of God. And we learn many things about God the Son in Scripture, of which perhaps the most notable is his dominion over all things. Christ the Son is the one who rules in God's stead, and in this, Adam is like him. And Christ, indeed, is the second Adam. And as the Son of God, he is the visible representative of God acting in the world. This is true both of Adam and of God the Son, the eternal Son. When we see God acting in the world, it is the eternal Son that we see acting in the world. He is the angel of Yahweh who goes through Egypt and strikes every firstborn. He is the prince of Yahweh's army who stands with a drawn sword in his hand and commands Joshua and the Israelites. He is the word of Yahweh who brings men into his counsel to send them forth of his judgments to the world. And he is the name of Yahweh who strikes the nations with a sharp two-edged sword. And he is, I'll defend this vigorously, Michael the archangel who pierces the serpent and draws him down, throws him down so that he can no longer accuse us before the throne of God. These are all manly things. What I want to do today is turn to ask how women fit into this. Women are not made as warrior kings. They are not given a prophetic ministry. They don't pierce serpents with sharp two-edged swords. So how do they image God? If the fatherhood of men images God the Father and the agency of men in the world images God the Son, just where exactly do women image God? That's what I want to answer today. And to give you an idea of where I'm going, I believe we can very safely say that women especially, just as men especially image the Son of God, Women especially image the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But this is a conclusion that we have to come to very carefully. I'm going to show my working a bit more in a technical way today because when we're talking about the image of God, when we get things wrong, if we get things wrong, we're not just making a mistake with the nature of man, or woman in this case, but also with the nature of God himself. We are dealing with the deep things of God, with the very holy trinity into which no one can look with clear understanding and whom no one should wish to blaspheme with unguarded speculation. So we must stick very close to scripture when investigating these matters, and we should also rely especially on the guardrails that the Holy Spirit has provided for his church in the form of the ecumenical creeds. And actually, that is where I would like to start. We have handed down to us from our distant forefathers the Nicene Creed, which lays out with great, clear, with great care and clarity the narrow road when it comes to at least certain aspects of the Trinity so that we can keep it between the ditches. Now, if you're not familiar, the Council of Nicaea was a global assembly of churches that met to investigate a huge controversy about the nature of Jesus as the Son of God and his relationship to God the Father, and they put their judgments into a creed, the Creed of Nicaea, or the Nicene Creed. This has been regarded universally since then as a basic standard for Orthodox Christian belief. It is very similar to the Apostles' Creed, but it's a bit more detailed. And there are two parts that interest us today because they capture the teaching of Scripture about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They express this teaching in a very simple but helpful language, which is why I want to draw on it. And let me 
add, to be completely clear, I'm not drawing on the creed because I think that it's on the level of scripture. I'm not preaching the creed to you today. I'm drawing on the creed because it is, well, I believe, we at Redwood believe, that it is true and accurate in its formulation of scripture's teaching. The Holy Spirit guided our forefathers to write this creed to protect the church from early heresies and to help us to understand the things that we need to know about the nature of God in a simple way. And I want you to hear not just my interpretation of these weighty doctrines, but the interpretation of all the teachers that God has raised up for the past 17 centuries. So let's begin with the relationship of the Father and the Son. Here is what these great men say. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father. Now this describes the begottenness that we talked about last time when we looked at fatherhood and sonship. The Son receives his essence from the Father, eternally proceeding from the Father, in a way that, let's be honest, we do not understand. He is not created by the Father. That's why we use the language of begotten, begotten, not made. This is taken directly from John's gospel. It's just repeating God's words after him because we have to say, essentially, this is the closest word that exists in created speech to describe the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father begets the Son, and that's all we know. He doesn't create the Son, but there is some sense in which he brings the Son into being. And yet the Son is eternal and unchanging and shares in the same nature and substance with the Father so that he is God as much as the Father is God. That's what we know. Perfectly clear, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, let's move on to the Holy Spirit. Here is how the Creed puts it. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son proceeds from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is quite important because it is what seems to distinguish the Spirit from the Son. If the Spirit only proceeded from the Father, then what would distinguish him from the Son? Because the Son also proceeds from the Father. So it would seem like you'd have two sons or two spirits. We would not be able to know how they were different. But this was actually a source of great contention and dispute in the early church. Did you know that this is the question? This, whether the Spirit proceeds from the Son, is the question that splits the church into East and West. The original Nicene Creed said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. It did not say that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. It, did, it didn't deny that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. It just didn't include that language. And I think this is because the Council of Nicaea was not investigating the nature of the whole Trinity as such. It was really investigating the nature of the Son. But over the course of the next hundred years or so, great theologians spent a lot of time thinking about the Nicene Creed, and especially about the theology contained within it. You have 
probably heard of Ambrose of Milan, St. Ambrose. And if you haven't heard of Ambrose, you will almost certainly have heard of Augustine of Hippo, who had the most fearsome mascot of all the saints. Not really, Hippo was a city in North Africa. Most of these men developed the doctrine, uh, both of these men developed the doctrine of the Trinity. And I don't, I don't mean that they invented it, I mean that they worked out the implications of it after Nicaea. And especially when they looked at John's gospel, they came to the clear conclusion that while the Holy Spirit does indeed proceed from the Father, he also proceeds from the Son. And so this language was eventually added to the Nicene Creed by the Western Church. If you've never heard of the Filioque Clause, now you have. And if you've ever heard of it and wondered what it was, this is it. Filioque is Latin for and the Son, as in the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque. It's one word in Latin that split the Eastern Church from the Western Church. Now, many mistakes were made on both sides that caused the split. It was not just a question of whether the Son proceeds from the Holy Spirit, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It was political and geographical, but this was the question that ultimately caused the split with excommunications and anathemas on both sides. And mistakes were made, but the one mistake that was not made was believing that the Father, uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It is unquestionably correct that he does. Now this might seem like a weird detour, but I would actually like to spend a little time looking at this because I want you to see it for yourselves rather than taking my word for it since it is actually quite an important doctrine. It's, we're dealing with the Trinity here, our great God, but it's also important for understanding how women image God and what God's calling is upon women, especially as mothers. So let us turn first to John 15:26, where Jesus says, When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. Now Jesus clearly says here that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. He uses those exact words. Yet he also says that he will send that Spirit. And he repeats this a few verses later in John 16, 7. If I go, I will send him unto you. And he continues, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth. And incidentally, this is how we can have great confidence in the church's universal proclamations like the Nicene Creed, because the Holy Spirit was involved in them. Going on, he shall not speak from himself, but what things soever he shall hear, these shall he speak, and he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and declare it unto you. All things whatsoever the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he taketh of mine and shall declare it unto you. Now, these chapters in John are famously hard to follow. So I do not blame you, especially if you do not have the text in front of you, if you're struggling to keep track of what's going on here. But whatever is unclear about this passage, the general relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit is pretty straightforward. The Spirit takes what is the Son's and extends it out, and the Son takes what is the Father's and extends it out. 
In this case, we're talking about wisdom and knowledge. The Son receives all wisdom from the Father, and then the Spirit receives this wisdom from the Son in turn and brings it out into the world, particularly into the hearts of his people. And hence, Paul's us, uh, Paul, Paul's us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For who among men knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the things of God none knoweth, save the Spirit of God. But we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that were freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Spirit teacheth, combining spiritual things with spiritual words. Now the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, and he cannot know them because they are spiritually judged. But he that is spiritual, that is he who has the spirit, judgeth all things, and he himself is judged of no one. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And Paul, too, can be a little hard to understand. So let me paraphrase for you what he's saying so we get what the important bit is here. He is saying that the only one who can know what a man is thinking is the spirit within that man. In other words, you know what you're thinking because it is your spirit that is thinking it. You are that spirit. I don't know what you are thinking because I don't have your spirit in me. And you don't know what I'm thinking because you don't have my spirit in you. I can tell you what I'm thinking, but you do not think it with me. And this is true of God as well as men. Only God's spirit knows God's mind because God's spirit is God's mind. So to know God's mind, to understand it, to appreciate its wisdom for what it is, we have to have God's spirit. God has to give it to us. And this is why there is no way to convince someone into the kingdom of God. The human spirit cannot produce faith because it cannot know the things of God. The things of God are set in opposition to it. The spirit of man is fallen and hostile to God, and the things of God seem like contemptible foolishness to it. Remember Genesis 6-5, which tells us that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all the day. The import of the Hebrew here is that every single thought and intention that man can form in his mind is only ever evil, that is, set away from God. And this is because man's spirit in its natural state is evil. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to them that ask him? It doesn't mean, incidentally, that man only ever plots villainy. It means that man in his natural state is only ever oriented away from God. So he's looking away from the source and the ground of goodness. So even the good things that he does and the good things that he sees in nature, in the created order, in God's image, he does them not for God because he's not looking at God. He does them for himself, for the people that he loves perhaps, rather than for God. He's always looking away from God and he refuses to look towards him. He cannot see the goodness and the wisdom of God and he does not wish to see. And so God to correct this problem, if he wishes to save anyone, has to put his own spirit within man. And that is the only way that man can come to know God again. And so Paul asks, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But then he answers in a surprising way. 
You would expect him to say, after everything he said about having the Spirit, the Spirit knows what's in the man and so on, you would expect him to say, but we have the Spirit of God. And that would be true. And he says that very thing in Romans 8, 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. But here in 1 Corinthians 2, he doesn't say that. He says rather, but we have the mind of Christ, equating the Spirit of God with the mind of Christ. And then in Romans 8, 9, he actually brings these directly together, concluding, if now anyone hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is not in it, of him. Now, here's, this why, here's why this matters. This is, okay, this is super interesting, but what's the point, right? What we learn here is that the Holy Spirit is both the Spirit of the Father, proceeding from the Father, as Jesus says in John 15, 26, and the Spirit of the Son, proceeding from the the Son. Paul himself combines these truths in Galatians 4.6, saying that God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Clearly here, God is the Father, and the Spirit goes out from him, proceeds from him, because the Father sends him. But equally, the Spirit goes out from his Son, proceeds from his Son, since he is the Spirit of his Son, whom Jesus says that he himself will also send. And if we think back to what we learned last time about how the name of the Father refers to his essence, that which he gives to the Son, <clears throat> we can begin to understand the significance also of what Jesus says in John fourteen twenty six. He says, The Comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. The Holy Spirit has the name of Christ. He shares in Christ's essence even as Christ has the name of his Father and shares in his Father's essence. And Jesus actually illustrates this to us with graphic imagery in John 20, 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Could there be any clearer depiction of, in the created realm of the Spirit proceeding from the Son than the Son literally breathing him out upon the disciples? I hope I'm not confusing you. I know this is hard to follow, and this is difficult doctrine, and these things are kind of deep and dizzying. But not only are they important in their own right, because this is our glorious God that we are learning about, but they're also very important to understanding how women image God. And to begin to see this, let's turn to the creation of man and woman, and consider again, as we have in the past many times, some of the differences between these creation accounts in the light of what we have just learned. So here's Genesis 2, starting in verse 7. Yahweh God formed the man of the dirt of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life, and man became a living soul. Then we jump down to verse 21. Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his sides and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the side which Yahweh God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. The man said, this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I'd like you to ponder the fact that the man here receives his existence directly from God, while the woman receives her existence directly from the man. God breathes into the man and he becomes a living soul, just as the father begets the son eternally, 
and the Son receives his essence from the Father eternally. It's a created image of these things. Adam proceeds from God in a created sense as the Son proceeds from the Father in eternity. By contrast, the woman is made differently. God draws her out of the man. Her existence is not from God directly, but from God through the man. The woman is of the man and for the man, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 to 9. So Eve proceeds from God through Adam, as the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. What I'm getting at is this. If it is right and fitting to say that men particularly image the Son of God, then it is also right and fitting to say that women particularly image the Spirit of God. Now, I want to emphasize immediately that I am in no way implying that the Spirit of God is female, but rather that feminine qualities don't come out of nowhere, but rather are created images of qualities that exist in God. It would take us a little far afield and possibly just be a little too much at this point to go further into this, because the nature of masculine and feminine and the connection between that and male and female, the biological realities, is not actually as simple and clear-cut as we tend to imagine, because they're both symbolic patterns, which makes them also fractal patterns. And this is why C.S. Lewis, who understood pre-modern thinking very well and was in no way a feminist, could depict the spirit of Venus in Perilandra as a feminine angel. I'm not sure I agree with him on that, but I understand what he was doing there. But suffice to say, the Holy Spirit should not be thought of as in any way female. He is God, and God is a he. Nonetheless, there are many ways in which women are like the Holy Spirit, especially. For instance, just as man is outward-focused in the world as an image of the sun, so woman is inward-focused as an image of the Spirit, who we know knits the church together as one body silently behind the scenes. We don't see him working, but we know he is working. There is a modesty to the Spirit which is reflected in women. Perhaps one of the cardinal virtues of women is modesty. Women are the crown of creation, the most glorious thing God made, and yet they exist not for their own glory, but to glorify their husbands. They are the glory of their husbands. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit exists not to glorify himself, but to glorify Christ the Son. Remember John 16, 14. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall declare it unto you. And John 17, 22 confirms that the Spirit is indeed the glory of the Son. As Jesus says, the glory which thou hast given me, I have given unto them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, Gregory of Nyssa has a sermon on this, but this sounds pretty confusing until you realize that what makes us one is our mutual participation in the Spirit of Christ. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 4, 3-6, where he instructs us to give diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Of course there is. A body doesn't have multiple spirits. There is one spirit in the body of Christ, which is the spirit of Christ knitting all the members together. So the glory, the spirit, which thou hast given unto me, I have given unto them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And this brings us to where I want you land today. We've got to land this thing eventually, right? There is one other 
most important way in which women image the Holy Spirit. I want to conclude here because it is the greatest, the most glorious, the most blessed way, and it is a way so wonderful and high that it is really the chief calling of woman in distinction from man and worthy of a more careful examination next time. So today really is a technical theoretical sermon. I apologize. I know you guys like application, but next week we will get into the application of how this works out in the life of women. So think about what we have seen about having the mind of Christ, the spirit of Christ, especially what we've said in previous sermons. In the Gospel of John, we looked at this. Jesus speaks there of his indwelling of the spirit using distinctly maternal words. He says to Nicodemus, Amen, amen, I say unto thee, except one be born anew, he is not able to see the kingdom of God. We looked at that passage in considerable detail, but it was many moons ago. By the way, the word month in your Old Testament is moon. So let me remind you that this rebirth by the Spirit is a participation in the rebirth of Christ himself from the grave. It is a spiritual resurrection in anticipation of our future physical resurrection. And again, of course, this is by the power of the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. As it is written, Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. But if the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you, he that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through his Spirit that dwelleth in you. That's 1 Peter 3 and Romans 8. So here we see the final and most important role of the Spirit that I want to settle on today as we close. He gives life. This is why the Nicene Creed, which says very little of the Holy Spirit, specifically calls him the Lord, the giver of life. 1,698 years ago, the heads of the world's churches and the greatest theologians of the time also came to the conclusion that this is the thing that most sets the Spirit apart in the economy of God. He gives life. And what does Adam name his wife? We say Eve. The Greek translation of the Old Testament says Zoe, calls her Zoe. Zoe means life in Greek. In Hebrew, the word is Chava. It doesn't sound very much like Eve. But knowing the word Chava matters because it comes from the word Chaya, which means to live, but especially because it refers to your breathing. Ha, yeah, ha, yeah, right? It's an onomatopoeia. I guess you don't need to be reminded that we've seen how both God and Jesus breathe out the Spirit. And maybe you do need to be reminded that the word Spirit in both Hebrew and Greek is the same word for breath. Is, there's no distinction. You can't say breath in Hebrew or Greek without saying Spirit and vice versa. So Eve, as the mother of all living, images the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, just as men's representation of God is most fulfilled in exercising outward dominion, women's representation of God is most fulfilled in bringing forth new life. And this should not come as a surprise to us, of course. We have already seen how the curses of God, for instance, are directed against the particular vocations of men and women. Adam's work is cursed. Eve's begetting of children is cursed. 
which tells us that men are workers in principle and women are mothers in principle. A man is someone who exercises dominion. That's what a man is. And a woman is someone who brings forth life. It's an oversimplification, but it is a biblical oversimplification. So it would be good, I think, to invest some time in understanding women's calling to motherhood specifically, to understand both the blessing and the curse that comes with it, and how the ladies of our congregation in particular may be encouraged and built up in that vocation. So that is what I would like to turn to probably next week. For now, let us rest our minds and exercise instead our voices as we respond to God's word with thanks and praise. Let us sing Psalm 15.